0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Build with Gen Z. Today, we have an amazing guest who ended up going viral on Twitter by comedically tweeting about how to keep your very small followership. And he ended up creating an ebook later on about it that ended up getting 2,000 downloads. Everybody welcome the awesome Paul Griffiths.
1: Hello. It's quite a stage. This is very high. I'm getting (laughs) a little dizzy at the heights of the stage.
0: Right? I feel like fame is getting to me a little bit, even though we haven't launched yet. This is a pre-recording
1: it's it's really the proscenium stage where everyone can kind of we're up about 12 feet those of you can't we're up about 12 feet from the audience Mm -hmm. uh and there's a really some great tapestries in the background and the lighting is absolutely perfect so this is an excellent stage
0: i don't know if you're nervous but i'm nervous because i haven't been able to find any information about you online except your twitter um and i don't know what to ask you and that's a first (laughs) So we are going to do a fire round to get to know you a little bit better. Yep. Um, okay. How old are you?
1: 45. I had to actually do the math.
0: Nice. <laughs> um, what's the first thing you do in the morning when you wake up?
1: I usually uh, take my dog out. I have I have a, a a dog that is very insistent on eating first thing in the morning. So every morning I feed the dog.
0: I have a cat, so I feel you. Um, where are you from?
1: I'm originally from New York. I grew up in Poughkeepsie, which is just on the end of the train line from New York City. And uh, and then I moved to Boston, though, about, oh, I don't know, twenty twenty three 23 years ago. So I'm, I'm now kind of half Boston, half New York.
0: <laughs> How many degrees do you have?
1: How many degrees do I have? I have two technical degrees. I have a a B.A. and an M.A. in creative writing, uh, but I did a course at Harvard Business School, and now I am a Ph.D. student at uh, the Lisbon School of Economics, mostly to keep up with my wife, who has five degrees. So we have a little bit of a, of a <laughs> war going on in our house.
0: Nice. Um, what's your favorite thing to do on the weekend?
1: Uh, I enjoy uh, I enjoy cycling on the weekend. I I. I go out biking with a bunch of uh, older, older gentlemen who are retired or, or semi retired and who are very, very fast. So I am the youngest and also the slowest uh, of this gang of cyclists.
0: I was expecting golf, but. Oh, no, (laughs) I never, never
1: played around golf in my life. Golf, golf is a, golf is a, is a a terrible waste of good, of, uh, of good soil. In my opinion, you know what
0: the golfing community is going to hate me for this, but I'm very glad you said that. <laughs> um, yes,
1: we should just, you know, go. Th- there's a there's a great Malcolm Gladwell podcast which is all about the uh, the insanity of how these large golfing uh, clubs are essentially nonprofits but don't function like no profits, and what's their public benefit? So, uh, so that that certainly turned me from a mildly anti golf guy into a rabidly anti golf guy. So.
0: You know what? I'm gonna listen to that.
1: <laughs> Do Gen Zers play golf? Is yes. that like a thing? Is that
0: Yes, it's a, yeah, it's it's really? not a cool thing. Yeah. It's it's I don't know why, but it's become such a big thing. And I hate it. Because now <laughs> all my friends wanna go golfing and also the mini golfing now is on the rise. Oh, now mini
1: golfing, I am I am pro mini golf <laughs> because any sport that involves me putting a ball into the mouth of a clown. I feel like automatically <laughs> is a, way it's, more it's
0: a win, huh? It's yeah. A so win.
1: mini mini golf is not about talent, and that's that's perhaps why I like it. It's a great equalizer. I <laughs> okay. could I could take Tiger Woods in mini golf. I'll say that right now. If Tiger Woods wants to challenge me to a round of mini golf, I, I would be
0: down. Well, let's hope he's hearing that. <laughs> undoubtedly, <fingers crossed. laughs> undoubtedly he is listening to this podcast. <laughs> what is your biggest pet peeve?
1: Uh, people who take their limited success way too seriously.
0: Oh, do you have any examples?
1: (laughs) Uh, do I have any examples? I mean, so, so part of how, how we met was my great disaffection for the Ponzi attention scheme that is social media. So I find that I take, I take my work and what I do very seriously, but I don't take myself very seriously. And I find that's often reversed in in social media, where people are just taking their anxieties out mm-hmm. on others and and hoping to get attention from it. And that, that's not something that I feel like is a good a good productive use of time. So that would that's why it's my my pet peeve.
0: We're gonna circle back on this topic because oh. I I really love this topic. Okay. <laughs> favorite video game.
1: Oregon Trail. I mean, I'm uh, yeah. Oregon Trail. You never played Oregon Trail. Okay, so nope. I I have I have teen teen boys who play a lot of video games, mm-hmm. uh, and that is that is generally not not what I do. However, I have spent a great deal of my life dying from dysentery on the road uh, to to Oregon. So the, those see so now I'm really educating. So back in the day, now <laughs> now I get to be back
0: in the day. I'm, am
1: I the oldest person you've ever had in your podcast? I feel like I am.
0: I don't want to say so. But. You don't want to say. It's <laughs>
1: fine. I'm comfortable with who I am. So back back in the day, you would you would have uh, you know social studies mm-hmm. in in like sixth grade, and you would go to the computer lab where there would be these Mac Two Es, and the only the only thing that you could do to pass the time was to insert a floppy disk of Oregon Trail, and it was all about you bought supplies and you traveled across the United States and you had to shoot. You know, your food for your family and then occasionally someone you love died and it was supposed to teach you something. I have no idea what it was. <laughs> uh, so they, there is actually a there is a there is a, definitely an iOS version of this game and I've seen it uh, played. So if I were to say the the game that I spent the most amount of my, t- my life playing, it was certainly Oregon Trail. So there you go.
0: That is amazing and fascinating. <laughs> and I, I would I would love to try it out. I want to see what lessons I learned from it. I feel like there's a lot of life lessons. Um, be a
1: banker. That's the big thing. You get <laughs> a lot a of money. You have Going to pick to- your profession and you can be a banker and you end up with being able to buy more things or you can be like a carpenter and then it's easier to nothing. make stuff. So it was It was a really, yeah, it was like the sorting hat for future <laughs> vocations for, for Gen Xers.
0: Brainwashing. Nice. Um, favorite movie?
1: The producers, the original Mel Brooks uh, from 1967, starring Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel, about a, two broad- a Broadway producer and his accountant who realized they can make more money on a Broadway flop than a success. So they set out to make the worst Broadway show ever. And the big musical number is, uh, is Springtime for Hitler. And Mel Brooks, it being being a Jewish man writing this twenty years, uh, you know, after the end of World War II, it's it's a complete satire, but it also has a real it's real social commentary and it has real <laughs> edge. And so it's a very funny, very strange movie, uh, and and the performances are absolutely amazing. So, 1967, the
0: producers. I should start watching older movies. You know what? Well, uh-
1: okay, I'll give you a more recent one. <laughs> Uh, Wes Anderson's Rushmore is tied is tied for my first favorite movie, which is about a, a kid who is so over the top and elaborate in his schemes uh, that he doesn't actually do a- any real work, but he writes these plays and has this kind of vision and fantasy of what his life could be, and it's just absolutely incredibly shot and acted. And, and but both of those are very. Are, I-, I feel myself in both of those movies for very different reasons. It's it's a lot about the vision and how. Mm-hmm vision can be absurd and lead you to absurd places and both those movies explore it and for totally different reasons uh brooks's is actually political satire and wes anderson's is a little bit more of a
2: mm-hmm.
1: um you know coming of age story but they're both just they're both just brilliant and and very interesting movies
0: what is your favorite sports team uh, this might get you some hate, so be very careful. <laughs> this got
1: me, Well, <laughs> uh, being, being in Boston now and having two, two, uh, two kids born in Boston, certainly all Boston teams, but especially the Celtics. There's nothing like going and seeing a game uh, live. So by far the best, most fun sport experience you can have in Boston is actually going to a Celtics game.
0: Okay, so tell us, who is Paul Griffiths?
1: Uh, that is such a profound question. Uh, who am I? Well, let's see. I'm, I'm a dad. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a husband. I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, most recently, I sold a company I ran for 16 years. I bootstrapped it and ended up having a, a really successful exit to a publicly traded company.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, along the way, made a lot of great friends, learned a lot about myself and about business, got to raise the, my kids the way I wanted to, and um, and really got to you know travel around and and kind of work on my schedule and my time and it was the right time to to be done. We we sold right before the pandemic and certainly being a part of a of a larger company it was much better for our clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of whom were because focused on hospitals primarily. Many of whom were going through their own challenges. Uh, to be a part of something much bigger, but uh, yeah, I learned I learned a ton um, mostly about myself, and yeah, I'm happy to share whatever whatever would matter to your audience and looking at all of them now in this crowded theater and seeing them nod
0: <laughs> seeing seeing the one who's done it all <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> yeah I, it, it was it was a very long overnight <laughs> it, you know people talk about overnight success, and it's there's just so many different seasons of running a business for over 10 years. It's really – it's a it's totally different challenge.
0: What is, but you still didn't tell us who Paul Griffiths is. You told us about your business.
1: Oh, well, I I said I'm a, a dad and a husband, and, and, and this is what I did for business. Uh, what else would you like to know? I don't know. It's such a pr- profound um, question.
0: Right? Um, tell me something you think is very unique or special about you.
1: Oh, well – my uh my superpower is creating a safe space for intellectual inquiry. So what I really like is getting to good discussions, and I don't care very much about titles or experience mm-hmm. or tradition. I, I like to look at real problems, try to solve them, and oftentimes the the best ideas come from unlikely places.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So m- what I really enjoy doing. Is sort of engaging with people and making real human connection, and kind of ignoring a lot of the reasons why people like to create barriers. And so, um, so that's animated my my work life and my personal life. So I have an amazing collection of friends who are all very interesting and very different. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and every year on on January first, we have a chili party. So we have a New Year's chili party, and we invite people to compete. Uh, and so we'll get, you know, a couple dozen entrants. And this last year we had prizes. So I actually I run a chili cook-off and the prize is a belt, like a heavyweight championship. <laughs> like, belt.
0: like like a the championship. Yeah, you, belt? yeah
1: <laughs> you win it and you walk around the party and people applaud you. And uh, and it's it's a really good metaphor for for my life, which is I like <laughs> to get a lot of different people and ingredients and and mix them up together. So my my life's goal, my big, hairy, audacious goal is to stop traffic at my funeral, so I really enjoy collecting interesting people and in relationships, and I I will often just say yes to things like a- appearing on a podcast with someone who I know nothing about. So who are you, Rand?
0: Who am I? You yeah. know what? That's a very good question. Um, I'm a 5'1", um, 21-year-old. I would like to call myself an entrepreneur, but... You know what? A lot of people call themselves entrepreneurs. Um, I'm a UX and UI designer. I have a Bachelor of Commerce. Um, Graduated a year ago and uh, started building my business a year ago. And we have some pre-seed team of five. We're becoming a team of nine next week. Um, We're building our product. And um, yeah, that's a little bit about myself. I immigrated or I came here as a refugee four years ago. And uh, started my life in Canada. And yeah, that's, uh, that's a little about myself.
1: See, <laughs> already more interesting than me. So now I want to ask you a question. <laughs>
0: wow, Which this is... is a reverse interview. Okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah,
1: so what was what was the single biggest um, idea about the West before you moved that you realized when you got here was like totally not true? <laughs>
0: Oh my god. Um this might get me in a lot of trouble. Um but I thought everybody who spoke English was cool. I don't know why. It it was it was this there was a very large barrier between the the Middle East and the West. Mm-hmm. Um because we didn't see a lot of people from the West. Mm-hmm. We almost worshiped them, you know, people with you know lighter skin, sure. lighter hair, blue eyes. It was it was It was different, you know, because everybody from where I was, you know, looked like me, spoke like me, had the same culture, same practices. So the fact that there were different people out there, it was almost like mind blowing. Right. And I was always very excited to actually go to the West and experience that West. You know, we watched High School Musical. We watched Disney. We watched Nickelodeon, like all of these shows. And they have this amazing portrayal of high school they have this yes. amazing portrayal of university of life of freedom of liberty right and then you come here and you're like where is it <laughs> <laughs> you're like where is that beauty that i always saw on tv that that you know that life that glory and you come here and you're like they're all this like they're all like us they just speak a different language they just practice different cultures they just eat different foods and that was a shock to me like genuinely I was shocked um, maybe that was like my 16 15 year old self you know well sure but thinking, if you but,
1: but you're right if you watch mm. D- Disney and these idealized versions yeah. of life and then you show up and and people are just as terrible as <laughs> as they are everywhere that's got to be very disappointing
0: yeah, people are as good and as terrible as they are everywhere. People are the same everywhere. And that genuinely shocked me because I was so excited to experience something different. And then I was like, oh, I'm still living in this <laughs> in the same world. Doesn't matter geographically where.
1: Yes. Well, we're uh, congratulations and or I'm sorry. I don't know if that's a path of wisdom and enlightenment or
0: something that I loved about the West. Um is nobody ever questioned me or what I was doing or anybody. Yeah. The, 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 uh,
1: the, I have have lots of friends all over the world and Mm -hmm. the, the most insightful thing that uh, someone said to me about being American is being an American, the, the past and the tradition don't really matter. Right. So the, the, Mm -hmm. the good and bad things about, you know, American culture is it's very contemporary. So we, we forget maybe some things that we should remember mm-hmm. but also there's no there's none of this traditional baggage that that is carried forward there's definitely the sense that yeah. you can reinvent yourself uh you know to a certain degree or mm-hmm. there's at least a kind of cultural thing that um having traveled and spent time in and particularly in the middle east you know tradition mm-hmm. is
2: very like, big 100
1: years ago is yesterday
2: very big. Yes. right
1: like it's a totally different way of seeing the world mm-hmm. and um that is definitely a and yeah. that
0: that stops you from doing a lot of things because tradition, what I noticed, like at least like from our Arabic tradition and like culture, yeah. there's a lot of feelings of shame. There's baggage, there's responsibility towards you, your family, your generations, you know, like you take that you, you take your entire history's package with you on your shoulder. And that gets too much versus what I've seen in the West where, you know, it's it's your own life and your own life only. Right. Nothing. there's nothing weighing you down. There's nothing stopping you. And that, that also sense that's, that's a different sense of liberty that I really enjoyed at least here.
1: And now look at what you're doing. You're starting (laughs) your own podcast. You're doubling the size of your company. I mean,
0: that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. But now back to you. Um, So you say that you're on your, on your Twitter bio, that you are an angel and precede. Um, you. We already talked about you being a PhD student. Yes. Um, so tell me a little bit more about that investment world and what do you do?
1: Sure. I invest right now primarily in um, in funds. So I've been an angel investor, dabbling in that for the last few years. I am a terrible angel investor. I think I'm negative for my angel investments. So though I really yeah. like it, uh, <laughs> I'm just really bad at assessing. Businesses kind of pre pre-revenue and the ideas. Without revenue,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the problems, I, I don't understand the problems of early stage companies. So I'm very good if there's, you know, when you actually are selling a good or a service to a customer, mm-hmm. that's where you get a lot of feedback. And the benefits of bootstrapping or really trying to achieve any kind of traction without money means that you have to make changes in mm-hmm. order to be able to get, you know, cash in the door. Mm-hmm. And I am really good after someone has kind of crossed that stage
2: mm-hmm. and
1: they're dealing with like people issues or they're dealing with scaling issues. Uh, there's an awful lot of value I can provide.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I just can't evaluate good, you know, what what's going to make it or not. And so my solution to that is to get involved in um, as an LP, so a limited partner in in funds that are really focused on uh, pre-seed and seed. I do think that the pre-seed seed world is where the biggest returns are going to come from, and I happen to think especially that the best returns are going to come from pre-seed funds that are focused on under-resourced, under-capitalized people. So you know, the VC world has. Um, has traditionally biased towards a, a certain profile uh, that I look a little bit more like. And <laughs> I think the challenge with that is, you know, my experience is that that has very little to do with success. Um, you know, but I guess the, the investments that I think are going to make the most returns are where you have businesses that need a catalytic amount of money, meaning mm-hmm. it's an actual business, But it just can't reach that next level to be investable, Mm -hmm. and so I think that's that's a little bit of of what I'm I'm looking to help with Mm -hmm. because I think there's a number of businesses that could really benefit from from going you know from a going concern to something that's really investable, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: the funds that I'm that I'm working with are really focused on that space, and so I think when you do that, you end up benefiting the founders, you end up delivering better returns but also you're making something that really wasn't there before. And that's a very different mentality than give someone who has been successful uh, a lot of money so that the, the risk is reduced. Mm-hmm. I think there's plenty of risk of having too much money and, mm-hmm. and a failing because you don't have that intimate knowledge of delivering goods and services that your client actually wants. And so that that's a little bit of, of my my investment philosophy now.
0: What is what was your worst, or the worst investment of your life? Uh,
1: the worst investment of my life was is is currently going bankrupt. So mm-hmm. I, I will think about how to say this carefully because the company is actually in bankruptcy right now. Uh, what I would say is, I believed in the market and I believed in the product mm-hmm. and the team turned out to have really big issues. And ultimately I saw and fantasized about the upside because it really was a good product and it really was a great market. And I was willing to overlook some pretty obvious
2: problems. Th- mm-hmm.
1: Problems, And, uh, and then once I went back and looked at, you know the the financials it became really clear that the the business was just was the the business of the business was raising more money yeah. and so it actually wasn't producing or hitting any of its milestones and so it has fallen into bankruptcy and lawsuits and recrimination and oh. that has been a very interesting experience to to watch
0: what market
1: what market?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I'll just say that it was it was uh, it was in healthcare. And I knew I knew one of the board I had a personal relationship with one of the board members and I had a personal and I, I knew uh, one of the guys in the C-suite. Mm-hmm. and uh, and even that, even that probably was a negative because it meant that I wasn't as critical because the trust that I had in, in these two people kind of transferred.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and when I sat down with one of them afterwards, um, even the board member, you know, he was like, Hey, I, I didn't even know what was going on. And so that, mm-hmm. that did not make me feel any better. So it was just a bad, it was a bad scene, yeah. but you know, that's, that's, that's part of, that's part of investing. I mean, there's risk that's and the reward. Risk. And, um, you know, if I had, if I had to do it over again, I would have done things obviously very differently. And now I've, I'm that much wiser. So
0: on June 9, 2021, you had eight hundred followers. 22 yes. hours later, you had over 2,500 new followers. Tell us about your very short, you know, upcoming of fame.
1: <laughs> my, uh, yeah. It's so nice to be interviewed during my 15 minutes of fame. This is, <laughs>
0: this
1: is be, I can look back on this with such pride. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so I've, you know, this year, having sold my company last year, been a lot more active on Twitter, but mostly just joking around. And I came across one of those posts that was, you know, 10 months ago, I had 700 followers. Now I have 40,000 friends. Here's how to do it. And just as a joke, I wrote, you know, 10 months ago, I had 800 followers. Today, I have 800 followers. Here's 11 and a half tips on how not to grow a following. And that I I... I literally wrote a thread in about 6 minutes and then I went to finish cooking dinner and then I you know and then I came back and you know within like 10 20 minutes I got like my my 801st follower and that was pretty funny <laughs> and then and then I got to like 820 and I was just uh, I had nothing to do that night so I was like oh whatever I'll 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 play along and um and then it really started to grow somehow the Twitter algorithm Picked this up and thought it was uh, legitimate, and then it really started growing. So I think I, when I went to bed, I had maybe gotten up to like a thousand followers, and then the next day, you know, it 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 started to go crazy. So as a joke, I uh, I made an ebook how to your Twitter following where I just basically screenshot my tweets and then put in a picture of a cat. Uh, that was my bonus content, and then 2,000 followers later that day, I launched a website. Um, Jesus,
0: your commitment. The,
1: yeah, the commitment to the joke it me. Was was significant, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then I and then and so that that kind of just kept the party going. Uh, and then I tried messaging all my followers, and that la- that broke when I got to about a thousand people. Like I w- I would hand message, I would actually message everybody, and then see if I could get a response, and really. The The joke was, I think, you know, two things. One, the fact that I was, uh, you know, commenting about my low energy social media following. There's a lot of people who have that experience. So mo- most of my followers who joined on were people like me who had like a couple hundred followers and didn't use Twitter that much. And they thought it was really funny.
2: Yeah, it I mean,
1: was. Um so there, there were people who were just like yes, mo- most people are not very successful at Twitter mm-hmm. because it's an awful lot of work. Uh, so that that kind of got a certain group, and then the second part was, you know, basically taking the form of advice but with no practical advice at all. Uh, <laughs> that other people found that very funny. So I was basically you know putting to use all of these tips but without any of the hard work or actual content or talent. And other people found that very amusing, and then as it rolled on, it kind of became like a, a magic trick. Like it just became, what else could I do to keep to keep the joke going? The joke
0: going. Could
1: mm-hmm. and so you know the ebook was really funny, and then the and the, the website. So the website was is eight hundred followers dot online. Um, Everybody
0: stuff. go check out eight hundred followers yeah. dot online.
1: <laughs> yeah, if it, well, we'll see. You know, I'm really cheap, so in a month I might not just pay the bill on the hosting. Uh, so we'll see if it's still if it's still up. Then
0: did um, anybody get your ebook?
1: Oh yeah, I got like I got like two thousand downloads of my of my It was amazing, um, and I I got about a thousand people to the to the site. So to me, the most interesting thing has just been the the messaging. So I, I mm-hmm. enjoy just kind of messaging people, but I'll, you know, I've had people from Ireland offer to buy me a drink. I have a guy <laughs> from Australia who's shipping me a t-shirt. Uh, you know, I ended up on this podcast. So t- t- to me, this is just an exercise in, in saying uh, yes. And which is a classic improv skill. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think the reason it was funny was I, I I made the tweet and I actually made the thread, and then as people found it funny, I just kept upping the ante, and that that mm-hmm. felt very anti-marketing funnel, mm-hmm. right? Mo- most of so the 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 Ponzi scheme of social media is make yourself famous, convince other people that if they follow you, you will make them famous, which makes you more famous. Like it's just very it, it it's somewhat empty, mm-hmm. and um and there was something about the the party that felt that really ran a counter to this classic marketing funnel which is you know prescriptive and you're supposed to have an outcome and you're supposed to have mm-hmm. a goal and i think there's something about having no ulterior motive that gets people to trust you so i think people felt like oh i'm willing to do this because this is just silly And yeah
0: there there was there was absolutely no ask from your end. And I know one of the biggest lessons for anything is to have an ask, whether it's for a funding pitch or a sales pitch or whatever. Always include an ask. But I think the pure thing about your tweet is there was absolutely no ask. No, was, I have it I had coffee. no
1: That's I, it. I it, it was uh it was just born out of born out of a little bit of uh, boredom and silliness and then it kept it was being authentic.
0: Silly. It was was authentic, authentic. yeah, and that's what why people loved it. I was when I first saw it, and that was the first time I've heard of you ever. And I saw it, and I was like, "Oh, is it going to be one of those, um, you know, people with a lot of followers giving me advice?" And then I kept on reading the thread, and I found it very funny. And the thing that I found funny was your commitment. It's it's not the actual oh today I have a yesterday I had a hundred followers today I have a hundred followers. It's the fact that you went ahead and you wrote a thread. Oh, of, yeah. Of the tips. And I found that so humorous. And I just, I loved it. And then that, that, I was like, follow. He's a funny guy.
1: <laughs> yeah. There were, there was a couple hundred. Con- so my, my commitment is, uh, I, I would just respond back to everyone who, who would comment in the threads. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that actually became more amusing to me. So we would end up on these like long trail conversations that had nothing to do with anything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I, w- when I first started out on the, on the internet back in like 1994, it was a very strange place. And there's something about the commercialization of attention
2: mm-hmm.
1: that makes it feel very cold when mm-hmm. and calculated. And so for me, I just, I enjoyed giving a little bit of that odd flavor, which I think is one of the amazing things. So one of the amazing things about the internet is when you have this kind of chaotic, good spill out right mm-hmm. and and everyone's in on the joke and no one's kind of the, the butt of the joke
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and that that kind of feeling of randomness and with joy and and everyone's kind of in, enjoying it is is hard to come by and it's especially hard to come by when people have a point or a goal or a strategy to try to get you to follow them or buy something mm-hmm. and so you know, it was the, it was it was really an art project more than anything else. And the thing about art is, it's it, it can sometimes just be it, it doesn't have to be commercialized. And so I just enjoyed the fact that you know people were doing it. And yeah, now I have like thirty eight hundred and something followers. And I'm, I checked I'm today, steady. yeah, I'm holding steady.
0: Very so impressive.
1: One of the things I'm I've stu- been studying this year in an academic. Uh, from an academic lens is actually social media creators so so mm-hmm. part of part of my uptick in twitter and and just being playful was really thinking about how does great you know c- content and art get made and how does it get rewarded and there is a lot of debate now about how to pay people for that so you've mm-hmm. seen like twitter for example has its tip jar or Uh, you know, other, uh, clubhouses trying to figure out how to, how to monetize its, its sort of, you know, followings. And I think there's always this, this challenge of you have these platforms who need content. Mm -hmm. Um, but if the content, a lot of the content ends up just being about how, how to be on the platform. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, that, to your point, it, it becomes empty
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and that, hollowness you get to see in social media platforms and that's why i think they can kind of rise and fall very quickly so clubhouse is super interesting
2: mm-hmm.
1: i it does feel like it was a real pandemic driven interest and i've been watching the rates of downloads fall off so it'd be interesting mm-hmm. to see you know w- what happens um but i think the idea that people want to use this technology to develop some sort of intimacy, some sort of real connection, Clubhouse found a way to do that for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably a, and, and that kind of random joy aspect of it, that you could just end up hearing from someone that you had never heard from before and it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, that always happens first. And then the commercialization happens very close after. And so, you know, any social media platform Typically starts with people who are creating things that are of value, but then the platform gets commercialized, and then as the platform gets more and more commercialized, it becomes more hollow.
2: Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and
1: then people leave. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens with something like like Clubhouse.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I do, you know, I I I do like the idea again of just of figuring out ways to use technology to build relationships. -hmm. And there's so much potential and there's so much opportunity. And it's been interesting to see Clubhouse, which is like decidedly non algorithm, you know, driven, Mm -hmm. why it's been success and why people have started to do it. And I think there's a growing awareness that, like, you know, Facebook feeds me only what I want. And so there's not as much of that kind of random joy um, because the algorithm is so strong. Mm -hmm. So it'd be interesting to see how 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 things settle out. Do we as consumers of social media do we want stuff that's not going to challenge us and that you know we is going to conform to our beliefs and that's the world we want to look at or do we want to engage in content that's new and interesting and totally outside of what we care about and then how do you reconcile the fact that so much of that content is driven by misinformation or trolls i mean that 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 th- those are like the three big issues for any social media platform
0: I find that's why TikTok has been a very interesting case user case for me. Yes. Um, I know a lot of a lot of people hate TikTok because they think it's just about, you know, girls dancing or underage girls dancing, but it's really so much more than that. And as soon as people started adopting the platform, it turned into an educational, a funny, like it's a genuinely happy place for a lot of people. And I love it, right? But now like you said, as soon as commercialization of it, not commercialization, as soon as um, the content creator fund was int- introduced, it felt like the creators were trying a little bit too hard. Um,
2: yeah.
0: And we talked about, you know, art and you know the the art also of creating content, and that's that is an art form in itself. And as soon as money is involved to produce more of it, I feel like the quality or the value of it goes down because. The um the overflowing of content in itself, I think, reduces the value of the art of the creation.
1: What um, TikTok TikTok, as you said, is kind of authentic and whimsical. It's the mm-hmm. idea that you can see people who mm-hmm. are real. And the minute that you're on, you're like, let me just hop on and tell you about my skin routine yeah. every morning. You know, it started. What is just,
0: your skin routine?
1: <laughs> what is my skin routine? <laughs> I have skin.
0: You have skin. That's <laughs> my
1: routine. That's it.
0: Nice. Um. Where can people reach out to you?
1: The, you can find me at Paul underscore Griffiths
0: on Twitter. I, that's it.
1: On Twitter, that's it. it. I'm a
0: increase his fellowship.
1: <laughs> I am. I am like a. I'm like a monk. You must travel to me. <laughs> I am not on all the platforms. If you seek the wisdom, you must climb the mountain of of Twitter.
0: On and, Twitter uh, to get uh, his skincare routine.
1: <laughs> that's right. My skincare routine. I do have a thread of my skincare routine.
0: I saw. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, it was great speaking with you and thank you so much for coming on and hopefully we can get you on again sometime soon.
1: It was lovely meeting you. I thoroughly enjoyed our time and I think you're going to be very successful.
0: (laughs) Thank you.